About a dozen years ago, I was meeting with a producer who was interested in some of the songs that I was writing at the time, and we had a, a young girl in our college group who just had a, an amazing voice. And so the two of us were, were talking with him about some possibilities, and he had this wild idea that, that um, people might be in the mood to start returning to hymns in a more modernized form, and turns out he was three or four years early. But we were meeting and going through some songs together, and some songs that I had written, and we sat down in my office, my shabby little office in uh, Anaheim, California, and started going through songs, just one after the other. And out of perhaps 50 or 60 songs that I played, sometimes I, I played three seconds and he'd say no okay and put that away and come to another one about ten seconds and he'd go no and he kept doing this and it was one of the most surprisingly painful moments of my life because it was like he was just shutting down my children you know he was saying they're no good they're not worthy they're not going to do it and, and again they're, they're like we ended up with three out of all of that that he said were possibilities if we tweaked them <laughs> And I realized then what I, I think I always knew, but I really felt it. And that's that songwriting is an intensely personal thing. When you write a song, or for those of you who have written poetry, you put something out there that really does come right out of your spirit. It's, it's a heart-level thing. And it's an expression of some real intimacies. I want you to understand as we go through the Psalms, one at a time. As we read and study through each one, these are intensely personal. In fact, what's amazing about the Psalms is how many people they impact. How quickly they touch our hearts. How often that's where we go when we're in times of distress. If you open up your Bible and you're just hurting and you want to have some kind of connection with the Father, you don't even have the words to pray. So often people will go directly to the book of Psalms. Thinking, maybe I'll find something here. Why is that? It's that intensely personal nature. And this morning's psalm that we're going to read is no less intimate and intense. Let's read through it. Psalm 6, verse 1. For the choir director with stringed instruments upon an eight-stringed lyre, a psalm of David. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am pining away. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are dismayed. And my soul is greatly dismayed. But you, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord, rescue my soul. Save me because of your loving kindness. For there is no mention of you in death. And Sheol, who will give you thanks? I am weary with my sighing. Every night I make my bed swim. I dissolve my couch with my tears. My eye has wasted away with grief. It has become old because of all my adversaries. Depart from me, all you who do iniquity. For the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord receives my prayer. All my enemies will be ashamed and greatly dismayed. They shall turn back. They will be suddenly ashamed Father these these words that David wrote so many years ago Lord are as personal for us today as they were for him then 
And we honor the fact that this is the outpouring of David's heart. And we honor the fact that he was in a time of great distress and trouble. A fearful time, a lonely time. And we recognize, Lord, how so many of us can be in that same place. I pray, Father, that You will, through this psalm this morning, reach into our hearts and speak Your Word to us. And draw us near to You, Jesus. For it's in Your name and by Your Spirit that we pray. Amen. We go to the book of Psalms in times of distress, in times of need, in times of sorrow or heartache or or, or confusion, because there is something wondrous in its working. Something... Touching in this book. Now, in the Middle Ages, there arose a popular form of mysticism in which it was believed that knowledge of secret names and words or texts actually carried magical wonders. They had magical properties. Certain words could be spoken and could evoke healing or could evoke protection. And this belief made the rounds regarding the book of Psalms. That there were those who were teaching at the time that the Psalms themselves contained magical properties used for the protection and healing of people. And a Jewish book was written to that effect. It was called the Shemushai Tehillim, or Uses of the Psalms. How to use the Psalms to, again, evoke this mystical, magical working in your life. Let me be clear. There is no mystical magic to the book of Psalms. The power of the book of Psalms is the same as the power of the entire Word. It is in the One to whom it directs us. And so the wonder of the Psalms is not the words themselves. It's not the particular chapter or picking out the third word of the fourth chapter, you know, two lines down. It's the fact that these Psalms, though born out of the heart of men so often in distress, so often crying out to God, they started with the Father. They are inspired by Him. And as we go through these, as much as anything we've ever looked at, there is wonder-working power here in the Word because it's the Word of God. Because it's the Spirit who spoke these things. And that's what we are invited to listen to, to, to tap into The Psalms inspire us to lift our eyes off of ourselves, if only for a few moments. To take our eyes off of other people where they so often get locked. To lift our eyes off of our circumstances and look to the Lord. Psalm 121 verse 1, I will lift my eyes to the mountains from where shall my help come from? Well, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Psalm 123, verse 1. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. And that's the beauty of this book. It's the lifting of our eyes heavenward. The seeking out of the Father. The looking to Him. Which is why so many psalms begin in places of dark despair and end in utter glory. So many psalms written feeling like it's the dark of night, but end with a great dawning. C.H. Spurgeon said the book of Psalms instructs us in the use of wings as well as words. I like that. Wings as well as words. It sets us both to mounting and to singing. 
Magical? No. Inspired? Absolutely. Lifting us up to look to the Father. In fact, you could call the Psalms the meeting place of divine inspiration and human emotion. Divine inspiration and human emotion coming together, which is why this is such a powerful and important aspect of the Scriptures. Now, with that in mind, we open the sixth psalm this morning. It's one of seven what we call penitential psalms. Throughout the book of 150, there are seven that specifically are songs of repentance. Psalm 6, Psalm 32, Psalm 38, Psalm 51, if you're jotting these down, and they might be good for future reference. Psalm 102, Psalm 130, and finally Psalm 143. The seven penitential psalms, or psalms of repentance. Psalm 6 is a plea of desperation, a desperate repentance in the dark of night. Now each of these penitential psalms deal with sorrow over sin. And in each one of these, the psalmist moves through lonely, sorrowful, deeply regretful night, arriving at the conclusion of a breathtaking dawn. And as we'll see... Psalm 6 itself, it hinges on the most crucial aspect of repentance. The one thing required above all other things, the most important thing for repentance to take place. Now, we know for certain who wrote the psalm. We know it's David. We're told that in the heading. And that heading that you see there is the heading that was in the original Hebrew there, where it says a psalm of David. So we know that David wrote it. What we don't know for absolute certainty is when David wrote it. Other psalms we know when. We saw this Wednesday night, Psalm 3, 4, 5, as he's running for his life as an old man fleeing from Jerusalem and from the usurping of the throne of his son Absalom. But here in Psalm 6, we know it's David, but... What's he crying out from? What's going on in his life? Now, scholars are divided as to this. It's a matter of debate. But most Hebrew scholars and rabbis are completely in concert. They uniformly pinpoint the writing of this psalm to a particular time in David's young life. A time when David was backsliding. How many of you have been there? It's not that you stop believing in God. You know, it's just that doubt or, or heartache or circumstances or perhaps another believer get in the way. And so you back off. And so you say, I just can't be there right now. I just can't be around them right now. I just, I, I'm having trouble connecting in worship. And as life begins to impose on us, sometimes we just want to give up. So what am I trying for? We saw that in Job a couple of times where Job just said, what's the use of this? What's the use of being a righteous man? What's the use of following God if this is what's going to happen in my life? And David was in that place. Again, not knowing absolutely, although I think we have a good idea. And we'll look at that in a moment. But we know emotionally David was in that place. place of giving up. This was a time for David when he had slain Goliath. That had happened. But it was before his rise to the throne in Israel, again, if the Hebrew rabbis are correct, his popularity and fame was absolutely widespread, but it was already causing problems for him. You may recall this in 1 Samuel 18, verse 7. It tells us, The women sang as they played and said, 
Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul became very angry, for this saying displeased him. And he said, they've ascribed to David ten thousands, but to me they've only ascribed thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? And the paranoia begins to work in the mind of Saul. He's ticked off. He's jealous. He's angry. He's threatened. And so Saul begins to chase after David in a murderous rage. Do you remember this? Saul's relentless campaign, chasing David from one end of the country to the other. David would enter a decade-long season of running from Saul, which is amazing. This young man, at one point, anointed as king. Wow, what's up with that? And then fights Goliath. And then becomes immensely popular and suddenly he's on the run and for ten years he'll run and run and run in his life. Perhaps you've been there as well. You you felt a special calling from God at some point and then you enter a dark season. A season of attack. A season of struggle. Well, that's where David is. He sets out running, hiding and not too long into this it appears that David had a breakdown. He had just had enough. Enough running. Enough cat and mouse. And he ends up in the strangest of places. Go back in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 21. 1 Samuel 21. Pick it up in verse 10. Again, David on the run from Saul, his life threatened. And verse 10 tells us that David arose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. Who was from Gath? Goliath was from Gath. David flees to the heart of Philistine country, Palestine. (laughs) The place of the Philistines. Enemy territory. This is where David has finally ended up. Apparently there were just too many problems in God's country to stay there. So David says, I'm going to Gath. At least there I know who the enemy is. Have you ever gone to Gath to get away? You ever left God's country, the church, and gone out and into the world because it's too difficult here. It's too frustrating here. Too many people have let me down here. Listen, there's more trouble in Gath than we bargained for. And David's there, and in verse 11 it says, The servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of of this one as they danced, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands? And David took these words to heart, and greatly feared Achish, the king of Gath. Oh, this is so like us. (laughs) We feel unfairly treated, or attacked, in the church. And so we turn tail and we head to Gath, enemy territory, only to find out there it's worse. There it's just as bad. There we have the same problems facing us. If there's gossip in the church, guess what? There's gossip in the world. If there are problems in the church, there are going to be problems in the world. If you're under attack here, you will be under attack there. Only there you are out from under the covering of Christ. Only there you're on your own. There you don't have the support of of others who have struggled just like you have. And you may not believe it, but it's true. There's not a one of us in here who haven't at one point been hurt by somebody at church. There's not a one of us in here who hasn't at some point had some heartache and some struggle. We understand that. 
But that support is left behind when we go running to Gath. And the problem is so often when we step out of God's church, which by the way is His church, it's His design, imperfect as it may be by human flaw. It's God's design for us in this season. And when we withdraw from that into the world, into our own Gath, sometimes we feel like we can't go back. We get stuck there. And we recognize pain there is worse than pain here, but I can't go back there because I'm already here. I'm now with the enemy. How can I ever go back? And it's foolishness. You all know this. People are going to do people things. It's what we do. We are human beings and we act like human beings, whether in the church or in the world. But please hear this. The people in the church are not the issue. The Lord is the issue. And if you're here for the people, you are going to be sorely disappointed. But if you're here for the Lord, suddenly, amazingly, the people start to look better. And even when they don't, you have an immense compassion if you're here for the Lord and not for the people. John said it this way in 1 John 4, verse 3, Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is of the Antichrist, of which you've heard that is coming, and now is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world. They, John writes, are from the world. Therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And let me encourage you that regardless of the human flaws in the church, to be where Christ is confessed. To be where at least for all of our struggles, at least we acknowledge His greatness over our sinfulness. That's where I want to be. Where the spirit of truth is speaking. Well... David's in enemy territory and things are going to get more dicey for him. Verse 13. It tells us so. He disguised his sanity before them and acted insanely in their hands and scribbled on the doors of the gate and let his saliva run down his beard. (laughs) The sweet psalmist of Israel is now acting more like a salivating psychopath. (laughs) Because he's afraid. And he's trying to throw them off. And oh, I'm here because I'm just not. And he's just going off. You want to know what's really crazy? What's really crazy is Christians who act like the world, playing both sides. That's crazy. And the world recognizes that. You know what? Your non-Christian friends know when you're trying to be like them. When you're trying to function the way they do. And one of the most shocking things to hear from a non-Christian is, aren't you aren't you a Christian? <laughs> That'll spin you around. Our greatest testimony, gang, in the world, your greatest tool of evangelism is simply walking with the Lord. Being who you are in the Lord. Walking in the light as He is in the light. And being in fellowship with other believers even when it's tough. I had this long conversation with Cheryl this last week. I, Boy, you know, I know that from here I can have a tendency... To speak about the issues and challenges in the church. To talk about doctrines that are false. And things that concern me. 
And you've heard me say more than once, I have a great concern that the Bible is not being taught in the church. But understand, when I speak negatively, I'm speaking negatively of wrong doctrine and wrong theology and things to have our eyes open to. But to church bash is never my intention. And there's far too much of it. I heard just last week someone say, someone who is a believer in Jesus Christ, I'm not one of those Christians. I believe in Jesus. Huh? As if to say, I don't want to be associated with that church thing. Well, that church thing is by the power of the Holy Spirit. That church thing is, again, God's design for this season of the world. I think partially because He wants us together to work out the kinks in each other. To rub off the rough edges. To learn how to love. In a situation where it's not always easy. The church is God's design. And fellowship with other believers, that speaks more to the non-Christian world than almost anything we do. For people to see a church of believers and say, wow, they really love each other. They really do care about each other. I saw the two of them fighting and then they repented and forgave each other. I don't see that often. Weren't you just in a bitter feud with that person? Now you're friends again? How's that work? 1 Peter 1.14 tells us, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that, listen, so that you may prove what the will of God is. Not to yourself, but to the world all around. Be conformed, be transformed by the renewing of your mind so you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Man, to run to the world is crazy making. As crazy as it was for David. So he's acting insane. I love what King Achish says to his servants, verse 14. Behold, you see the man behaving as a madman? Why do you bring him to me? Do I lack madmen? <laughs> that you have brought this one to act the madman in my presence? Don't we have enough crazies here? That you bring David in? Shall this one come into my house, he said? And verse 1 of chapter 22. So David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's household heard of it, they went down there to him. Now, the Hebrew scholars, the rabbis, believe that David wrote Psalm 6 right after, right after the cave of Adullam. Right there. Before his brothers came down, before all his father's household came to comfort David when he was alone, when he had fled, he'd already backslidden out of Israel, now into Philistine country, realizing how crazy that was. He starts to act crazy. He flees there for his life, and now he ends up in a cave by himself, in the dark, considering the last few actions of his life and thinking, this is nuts. This is crazy. David. Tired of the attacks of his own leaders, fearful of the world, he's stuck in a cave, but in that stronghold. Amidst those dark and lonely nights, as he reflects on what's happened, David begins to write. And we come back to Psalm 6. Now, note this. Saul hadn't struck David. 
The Philistines didn't strike him down, but his own heart is struck with the realization of where his choices had taken him, even in the instrumentation of the psalm. What do you mean? Well, it tells us, for the choir director with stringed instruments, the word stringed instruments there is literally neganot. The neganot was an instrument that was played by striking. The same instrument that was used in an earlier psalm we saw Wednesday. It was played by striking. You hit the strings to get the music to come out. It's kind of a powerful, pushing sound to it. And it was thought that the psalmist would often use the negative note to imply scorn or deep emotion. You're upset about something. You're playing the negative note and you're getting that, that song out. And David is apparently deeply pained as he strikes these chords. Verse 1, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am pining away. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are dismayed. David is painfully aware of his weakness. He's recognizing it. He's confessing it before the Lord. Perhaps in his defection to the enemy, perhaps in his madcap display of foolishness, his aching, his sorrow is running as deep as his bones. He'll say that again again in a later psalm. Psalm 38, verse 3, he'll say, There is no health in my bones because of my sin. And you know that's what sin does. It begins to corrupt. It, It wears us out. It wears us down. It's not the threat of the Philistines. It's not the rampage of Saul that finally gets to David. It's his own sin that takes a toll on him. It's his own backsliding. It's his own position that gets David to say, Man, I'm, I'm weary to my bones. Sometimes we think standing up for the truth is the hard part. Oh, man, I've got I to stand strong. I've got to stand strong. I've got to stick to the Word. I've got to be a Christian. Oh, it's exhausting, but i got to do it. You know what science has proven to us? It takes 3,000 times more mental energy to tell a lie than to tell the truth. Did you know that? And there are research studies that show this in the functioning of the brain, how hard it is when someone's lying to work all this stuff out. I won't get all into it, but it starts in the back and makes its way to the frontal lobes, and in the frontal lobes, I'll tell you this much, the frontal lobes have to decide once the, the lie has been produced in the back of the brain comes to the front, the frontal lobes then have to decide, are we going to go with this or not? <laughs> and that decision's made, and then the lie is propagated, and there's a lot of work that goes on as opposed to just telling the truth. Because the frontal lobes know when you're telling the truth, as it comes up, they're like, oh, yeah, it's the truth, go ahead. We know what's right. We know what's wrong. The the conscience we talk about, we hear the Spirit speaking into our hearts and into our minds, and when we don't want to speak and walk in truth, it's hard work. It's wearisome to our very bones. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 7. Solomon wrote, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. So if you find yourself in that backslidden state or in that place of of really kind of kicking against the things of God, it's tiring, isn't it? The Lord would say, I know it is. That's why repentance brings refreshment. That's why turning to me brings healing, even to your bones. Verse 3, David says, And my soul is greatly dismayed. But you, O Lord, how long? 
How long? How long, Naomi asked, until my birthday? You see, we just had two birthdays in our house. David's second birthday, followed one week later by Anna Marie's 12th birthday, and Naomi is desperately trying to figure out how long until hers, August 4th. (laughs) She has a long time to wait. Man, telling a child three months is like saying, in your next life, you know, in heaven, when you're with the Lord, that's when your birthday is going to happen. The question of how long will arise 37 times in the Psalms. David and the other writers saying, how long, Lord, must we wait? How long until we see your justice? How long must I sit in this place? And sometimes we find ourselves in suspense as to what the Lord is doing in our particular plight or problem. And we wonder, how long? How long? Listen, if you're asking how long regarding a challenge or a problem or a struggle in your life, the answer, I believe, is very simple. Long enough for the Lord's perfect plan to be realized. How long? As long as it takes for God to do in your life what He purposed to do, what He intends to do. And in some cases, how long may be an instantaneous thing. And in other cases, how long may be years. But if you are trusting in and listening to the Lord, you know He's working something out. He's getting me to that point where He wants me to be. As the psalmist said, Psalm 31.15, My times are in your hands. That's just a great line. When you're saying, how long? Come right back to that. Wait a minute, my times are... My times are in your hands. But, but if you, like David, are crying out because of sin choices that have landed you where you are, and you're feeling the weight of that, and it's all kind of crashing in on you, and you cry out, how long do I have to feel this weight, this weight of, of self-appointed sorrow because of my sin? And the answer to that is very simple as well. Long enough for you to turn around to the Lord. Long enough to turn back to the Father who's, who's waiting at the gate, waiting to run and embrace you on the road, waiting to bring you home. David reaches this point of repentance in the cave of Adullam, I believe. Verse 4, Return, O Lord, rescue my soul. Save me because of your loving kindness, for there's no mention of you in death. And Sheol, who will give you thanks? Now that word mentioned in verse 5 is literally remembrance. And what David's saying here is, no one remembers you when they're dead because they're dead he says what good am I dead Lord I can't praise you in Sheol I can't, I can't lift up my hands from the grave you know I'm, I'm stuck there and so David's saying save my life and I love this heart save my life so that I can praise you save my life so I can pra- not, not save my life Lord so I can because there's stuff I still want to do <laughs> There are things that I still need to take care of. My, my list is not all checked off. No, no. For David, it was save my life that I might praise you more. Verse 6. I am weary with my sighing. Every night I make my bed swim. I dissolve my couch with my tears. It's the first waterbed. <laughs> my eye wastes away with grief. And it's become old because of all my adversaries. What a description. David is falling asleep weeping. David is turning over in his bed at night, which would be the cave floor, weeping. David is waking up in the morning weeping, and he gets to the point, you know when, when you've had a trauma, 
in your life and you've just you've poured out your tears, not just hours, but over a number of days, and your eyes just get that dry, crusty, old feeling. And that's what David's feeling. He has been weeping for a long time here. Eyes stinging from the many tears. Weeping over his own choices and behavior. Now, go back up to the heading of Psalm 6. It says that it's with stringed instruments upon an eight-stringed lyre, and that's not really a very good translation. Because the word for eight-stringed lyre that this rendered there, well, the King James renders it more accurately to the Hebrew. Let me read it to you. It says, To the chief musician on the neganot upon shimonit. Shimonit. What's the shimonit? It's translated literally upon the octave. Which is why... The NASB decided to say an eight-string lyre. An octave. Oh, okay. Octave, eight, so eight strings. That's not what it said. It said upon the octave. The instrument is the neganote, as we talked about. The instrument is struck to make the sound. But the score of the music is to be played on the octave. In other words, in musical terminology, the psalm is to begin low and end high. The psalm is to begin in one place and then leap up. It progresses from mournful, suddenly leaping an octave to this grand and confident conclusion. Listen to that now. Verse 8. Depart from me, all you who do iniquity, for the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord receives my prayer. All my enemies will be ashamed and greatly dismayed. They shall turn back. They will suddenly be ashamed. The Lord has heard me. He sings. He's heard my prayer. All my enemies are going to be put to shame. Which in the context of repentance is an interesting thing for David to say. What does the enemy do to you? What does the enemy do to me? His greatest tool is he accuses. He accuses. We backslide and he's right there saying, Oh, look at yourself. I told you this would happen. You and I both knew you were never strong enough to walk this out all the way to the end. You knew it was going to happen. I knew. Everybody knows. You're a failure. You're a loser. Look at yourself. And the enemy accuses and accuses and accuses. But David says, My enemies will be ashamed. The word there, ashamed. The Hebrew word is bush. And bush literally means confounded. The enemy will be confounded. All of my enemies will be suddenly confused. So our enemy accuses us what confuses him. And here it is, the hinge point of the psalm. The key to true repentance back in verse 4. Save me because of your loving kindness. Would you repeat that after me? Save me because of your loving kindness. Save me because of your loving kindness. It's not forgive me because I've used the right religious phraseology. I've chosen the correct words. It's not save me because I promise to turn it all around and live right. It's not let's make a deal. It's not show me my penance. I'll do that and then you give me what I deserve. You never want to say to the Lord, give me what I deserve. (laughs) It's just a bad idea right there. No, it's save me for your mercy's sake. Save me because of your loving kindness, for your chesed 
That word we've heard many times in the Hebrew. It is the Hebrew word for grace. Chesed. It's loving kindness, mercy, grace. And Paul said in Romans 2.4, the kindness of God leads you to repentance. Because my ability to repent and to do the right thing is not based on anything I can dredge up. It is based on His loving kindness. His loving kindness came first. And then my repentance followed by His loving kindness. My attitude, my heart of repentance is sandwiched in between God's mercy. And it's the heart of David's psalm. And it is, I'm convinced, the heart of repentance. And by the way, it absolutely confounds the enemy. He doesn't get it. It confuses him. Because he doesn't understand mercy. Mercy is not just something God produces. Mercy is God's very nature. I love this about David. The sweet psalmist of Israel does not appeal to his sweet songs. Lord, I've written you all these great songs. I'll sing one of them, make you happy, then you forgive me, right? He doesn't appeal to his slung stone that punctured Goliath's big head. Oh, I did that and saved Israel. Can't you save me? He doesn't even appeal here in this beautiful, eloquent, poetic psalm of repentance. It's not even about this song. I mean, think about it. How many of you dare pray, God save me because of my righteousness? But you know what? We do it all the time. Oh, I'm not in those words. You know, I wouldn't say, God, I'm so good, I'm so holy, and I'm so righteous, save me. But in my mind, I'm doing all this stuff. Okay, I want to say this the right way, because I know you like the right thing. And, um, and, and by the way, I just got home from Wednesday night Bible study. Okay, and, um, and I'm really trying to pull it together, Lord. And in essence, we're saying, save me because of my righteousness. No. God will not save you because of your righteousness. He will save you for the sake of His mercy. He will save you because of His loving kindness. You know, God took His sweet time in revealing this to man. And I mean that in a good way. God allowed His nature and character to unfold over time. You see, Adam and Eve, they got to see it in the garden, but they rejected it. So God said, alright, I'm going to show you who I am. And we're going to take a little bit of time to do this. And I'm going to call a man he called Noah. Saved him. I'm going to call another man he called Abraham. And he began to show bit by bit who he was. But a moment came in our history, watching the Father where he popped the lid and revealed his true nature to us. Back in Exodus 25. And you can turn there or I'll just read it to you. Exodus 25 and verse 17. God told Moses to build a box. Build it out of acacia wood, Moses, and and inlay it, overlay it, inside and out with pure gold. And inside the box you're going to keep the law, among a couple of other things that he later had put in there. But what did God have Moses put on top of the box? It's the mercy seat. Listen to this, verse 17. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits long, one and a half cubits wide. You shall make two cherubim of gold. Make them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherubim at one end and one cherub at the other. 
And you shall make the cherubim of one piece with the mercy seat at its two ends. The cherubim shall have their wings spread upward, covering the mercy seat with their wings and facing one another. The faces of the cherubim are to be turned toward the mercy seat. And you shall have put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony which I give to you. Verse 22, there I will meet with you. There I will meet with you, he says. Where? From above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all that I have given you in commandment for the sons of Israel. God says, I will meet you between the wings. I'll meet you there. Between the wings. Those wings of mercy. That's where I'm going to meet you. Listen, Jesus said in Matthew 23, 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I've wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were unwilling. God said, I'll meet you between the wings. They're on the mercy seat. Jesus said, I want to gather you under my wings. And there, just a few days later, on a hill outside the city walls of Jerusalem, Jesus spread His wings. And He said, I will meet you right here. Between the wings. I will do what you cannot. He spread wings of mercy, literally. From that day forward, Jesus says, I will meet you here. Now, now please understand this. Get this. The key words of Psalm 6, there in verse 4, are not your mercy. The key words are not your loving kindness. No, the key words are because of. Save me because of your loving kindness. Or put a better way, save me for the sake of your loving kindness. Why would Jesus spread His wings and die for sinners like us? Because there's a shred of goodness in us? No, I don't think you make a case for that. Why would David cry out, Save me for the sake of your loving kindness? It's the same reason David said, Don't let me die here, because I can't praise you if I'm dead. Save me for the sake of your loving kindness. In other words, save me so that your loving kindness will be seen. Because people will see me saved by you and they'll say, Wow, He is a God of mercy. Which takes us a step further than our own repentance. It's not just about what we get out of the deal. It's what it proclaims about our Father every time we repent. Every time we repent. It's for mercy's sake. God's response to our repentance is for His mercy's sake. One last thing and we're done, but tune in. This is absolutely huge. The book of Ephesians chapter 2. Other side of your Bibles. Turn over there quickly. Ephesians chapter 2. I don't know about you, but for me this is a radical turnaround on my understanding of mercy. Because mercy always meant something God did for me. But the heart of mercy is not something God did for me. It's something that as God does it for me, it proclaims who He is. It reveals who He is. It is about Him. 
His mercy, poured out for you, poured out for me, is truly about Him. Listen to this. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, Paul writes, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath. See, there you go. That's our nature. Children of wrath. Even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that, and you might want to circle so that in your Bibles. Here's why. In the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What do you think we're going to be praising God for throughout all eternity? His grace. His mercy. It's it's the substance of our very worship. It's the heart of our praise. His loving kindness. There won't be a single person present. Not one spirit there praising for any reason other than for His mercy's sake. One of the most heartbreaking stories I think I've ever heard related to how a church leader got it wrong. Happened to someone who is a part of this fellowship. Who was told, as a young girl, and this was a long time ago, actually in Europe. She showed up late for church. Now she got herself to church because her family didn't go. But she was late. And in coming in late to this particularly stern Church, I won't name it. She was required by the leader of the church to go to the back of the auditorium and crawl on hands and knees to the front for her penance. The church floor was made of rough cobblestones. By the time she got to the front, her knees were bleeding. Because you got to pay for grace, you got to pay for what you get. You've got to make some kind of obeisance to the Father and you've got to hurt for it. You know what? That's not repentance. That's humiliation. But somehow in our church history, some of us have gotten the idea that I need a little humiliating in my repentance because I've got to pay for it somehow. I've got to show God that I have... See, I've done my part here, Lord. Now if you'll do yours, we'll partner up and again, let's make a deal. And that's not what this is about. Now the heart of repentance is God's mercy. When I repent, you know what I'm doing? I am declaring His loving kindness. I am proclaiming the grace of God. And I'll tell you something else. When I refuse to repent, I am denying it. I can't go forward. Be embarrassing. And I'm not in the mood to be embarrassed. The Lord draws you in. Come on. My mercy is waiting for you. Yeah, but but, it it would cost me too much. Really? He said, between the wings I will meet you. What cost Christ everything? 
And all it costs you, all it costs me, is to declare His grace. That's repentance. For every moment, every time we repent, we proclaim the mercy of God.